freed to live to make a difference. In the passage we're looking at today, the writer, believed to be the Apostle John, is writing to people he cares about some 50 to 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. Many who were adults at the time of Christ have passed on. The Christian message has been spread far and wide. Back when Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples were left gazing, wondering, very much with a left-behind feeling. However, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended upon them as they were gathered together, and they were never the same again. Now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they proclaimed Jesus' message of salvation, and the church grew. That is, people came to know Christ, gathered together, and the body of Christians grew. Their message could not be ignored because it challenged the worldview of the day. Many Christians were persecuted and many fled, spreading out around the then known world, some travelling to distant countries, sharing the good news as they went. So despite the oppression, the church flourished and grew. This new movement of Christians who believed the gospel now lived with a burning motivation to share it with those they came in contact with. But as time went on and as we see today, people ask questions and suggest meanings and promote their own ideas. This is how it was and it has been throughout history. Among these ideas, these philosophies, some that went against the gospel preaching were also promoted, inevitably causing divisions. And it's to a group who are struggling with such ideas, brought in and promoted by false teachers, that John addresses this epistle and this message today. The passage starts with John outlining his purpose for writing to the group of people. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. John's purpose is clear. However, he is not writing in a way that condemns his friends. Rather, he's addressing a life issue and offering them a solution if they find they're being caught up and if they find themselves trapped or entangled in sin. He continues, But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ the righteous one. This message is right up to date because it applies to us too. It's important to hold these two statements in balance. I write this so that you will not sin and but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence because John does not want to encourage sin but he doesn't want us to have us think light of it. But neither does he want us to be bound in guilt without a way of escape because we fail to be perfect. 
There's a balancing act here. And the answer being to focus not on the action, but on who we focus our lives on. Where our allegiance lies. Are we focused on living for our loving Heavenly Father or on living comfortably in this world? What is important to us? Because that will determine how vigorous we will be focused on living to please God as we are exhorted to do so. Let us look back for a moment to some verses in the previous chapter which outlines his clear intent. If we look back at chapter 1 and verses 5 and 7, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The intent of the message is clear. There is a way out. There's hope. Christ came to open the way for them and for us too so we can escape the traps of this world in which we also live. The solution is in verse 7. But we know that too often we fail. So there's no hope without the promise that verse 9 of chapter 1 tells us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we blow it, do we recognise our failure? Do we recognise our wrongdoing as sin and confess it as such? If we agree with God that we've failed, that we've not lived as he wants us to live, and we ask him for help and believe that because Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, our sin has been forgiven and he will purify us from it all. We will be empowered to hear what he has to say and know that we can apply it to our lives because he wants us to and because Jesus broke the power of evil. As we rely on his saving grace, we can have the victory. We can focus on living as he wants us to. And when chips are down, we can look to him for help and he will give us the spiritual strength we need and the ability to persist, to grow more and more like him in the process. So with this in mind, we look back at the first few verses. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. John is writing to people he cares deeply about. In referring to them as my dear children, he's using an expression that shows a warm relationship, just like a little child that says, my daddy, help me, as opposed to one that says, my dad or my father, help me. Both are conveying the same message that the male parent has helped the child. But the first one comes with a lot more warmth. And the way this is written is expressing that warmth. John's purpose is to keep them from sinning, as John Stott says, and instruct them 
so they can live lives that both please God and ensure they stay free from being caught up in sin's traps themselves. But he's realistic too. He knows full well the truth as spoken in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Horror, hatred, fear, repudiation of sin pervade this whole epistle. John, John longs that his friends will be preserved from the evil teaching of the heretics and not fall into sin. As Christians, we may never escape Jesus' specific command that we sin no more. So does John expect us to be perfect? John is well aware of the insidious nature of sin that we face and the consequent challenge to live God-honouring lives. So he continues, But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. This clearly indicates the author's conviction that acts of sin are too often a reality in our lives as Christians. But it separates the recognition of single acts of sin which don't match up to our life's focus and our desire to be people committed to God's ways from those living habitually in a sinful state without any thought of submitting to God as the Lord of their lives. He's talking about people who have been changed as a result of accepting Christ and committing themselves to follow him but are not perfect. Perfection for us will only be achieved in heaven. So there is a solution to this universal problem of imperfection and failure to live God-honouring lives, of being ensnared to do things that we don't want to do. It's right here where John says, referring to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The provision God made for us when we sin is unfolded. Jesus came to earth, not because he was adventurous or wanted to find out what was going on or hang out with the earthlings because it might be cool. He came to earth because sin brought into the perfect world through disobedience, had separated mankind from God. He came to do away with lawlessness, a defiant disregard for the law of God which deserves the judgment of God. He came to fulfil the need that there be a sacrifice of atonement for the sin of rebellion and every other sin against God who loved the world so much that he sent his son to be that sacrifice so that restoration between God and the people he had made could take place. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott says, God's feeling towards us never needed to be changed. God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God does not love us because Jesus died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. Christ's death on the cross satisfied the requirement for justice 
that a pure life be offered to cover, to atone for sin. While Judas delivered Jesus to the priests, and the priests delivered him to Pilate, and Pilate to the soldiers, the New Testament indicates that both the Father gave him up and that Jesus gave himself up for us. How amazing is that? Christ gave himself up for us. As a result of that, John is saying that Christ speaks to the Father in our defence. He is now our advocate, and in contrast to a lawyer in court who promotes the innocence of the one he is defending, Christ acknowledges our guilt. But then he presents to God what he accomplished on the cross as the basis for our acquittal. Because of Christ, we can walk free before God. In the cross of Christ, John Stott says, unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The guilt of our failures, of our wrongdoing, whether willful or accidental, the guilt of our sin washed completely away because of Christ's sacrifice. The offer is available for every person, everywhere in the world and for all time. So that offer applies to us. It seems so incredible. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller says, God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the operating principle of the gospel is, I am accepted by God through what Christ has done. Therefore, I obey. So we're not talking about religion. We're talking about something different. We're talking about our relationship with God based on faith and on what Christ accomplished by dying on the cross in our pace and paying our penalty. Let us focus our lives on that. And let us live with grateful hearts. This is the key, I believe, to living God-pleasing lives because we're living in a loving relationship with God and we want to please him. Verses 3 to 6 says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. We are included if we know Christ. If we believe he died in our place and that God raised him to life, proving that his power has overcome the power of death. Again, in these verses, we have both God's goal for us and a warning when we pretend to be something or someone we are not. The question really is, Who do we want to be aligned with in life? 
Have we chosen to be living for light, life and love as exemplified by living with a focus to honour God? Because by not choosing it, we are remaining on the side of death. If we've chosen to be associated with light, life and love, then we need to focus on getting to know Christ and living with that as our goal, making that our focus, actively pursuing it and believing that God will help us in the process because he will not demand that we live one way if it's truly impossible. Once again, after a challenge to obey his commands, we have the encouragement that if anyone obeys his words, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Again, quoting from Tim Keller's Reason for God, the gospel contains the resources to build a unique identity. In Christ, I could know that I was accepted by grace, not only despite my flaws, but because I was willing to admit them. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet, I am so loved and valued that Jesus was willing to die for me. These short thoughts should make us very humble and yet at the same time give us real confidence. We come to God because he loves us. We come to God so that we can have the power to grow in his love and in his ways and live as he would have us live, realising that we cannot do it on our own, but only through his power working in us. John has reaffirmed, John has reaffirmed the basis of Christianity. As people who have been redeemed, we are different. Consequently, we should be living differently. His word tells us the world and its desires pass away, but those who do the will of God live forever. So as we live out our faith, let us live as men, women or young people who know our God. We are eternally free and supported by our incredible God, to be his instruments in the world, living and working so that his good news and his offer of salvation can have maximum impact for all around the world. And he wants us to be a part of drawing people to him and that will have eternal ramifications. And all this is possible because of what Christ has done for us before we ever knew him. How great is our God. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we do not understand fully, but we are thankful, ever so thankful for your mercy and your grace. And we ask that you would help each one of us to go into this week focused on your call on our lives. We cannot do this ourselves, so we look to you and ask that you would help each one of us to truly value your offer and through prayer and time set aside with you to open our lives to you, to work in us and with excitement see what you have for each one of us in the days ahead. 
for we ask it for your glory. Amen.